everyone, and welcome to this special episode of the Heart Podcast, this time teaming up with BMJ Learning. My name is Dr. Charles Hall, and I'm a clinical editor for BMJ Learning. For this episode, we'll bring you three interviews with key people behind clinical decision tools for prediction of pulmonary embolism. We'll cover this topic in more detail in our learning module called Step-by-Step How to Diagnose a Pulmonary Embolism, which is available on our website, www.learning.bmj.com. Later in this programme, we'll listen to two short interviews with Dr. Gregoire Lagal, author of the paper on age-adjusted D-dimer, and Dr. Jeff Klein, who is the author of The Perk Rule. But let's start with Dr. Phil Wells, who is the author of The Wells Score for Deep Vein Thrombosis and Pulmonary Embolism. The interviews are conducted by Dr. Kirsten DeWitt, lead author of the BMJ Learning Module on how to diagnose a pulmonary embolism. Hello, this is Kirsten DeWitt. I'm interviewing Phil Wells, who is the author of the Wells Score for Deep Vein Thrombosis and Pulmonary Embolism. Dr. Wells is the Chief of the Department of Medicine of the Ottawa Hospital. Hello, Kirsten. Did you ever foresee that the Wells Score for Pulmonary Embolism would be used in general practice? Well, obviously, I'd have to say no, I couldn't have predicted where it would be used or even if it would be used, but Certainly the idea was to simplify the diagnostic process for as many physicians as possible. My whole motivation for doing the clinical model was to make care of pulmonary embolism patients safer, more effective. Thinking back, I would have probably wished or should have thought that it would get used by general practitioners, yes. Is it safe for GPs to use the well score and D-dimer to exclude pulmonary embolism in their surgery? Well, as you know, I prefer to be as evidence-based as possible whenever I give opinions, and there really isn't a lot of evidence to base my opinion on in this case, but there have been tens of thousands of people who have had the Wells model applied, and it's been proven to be very effective. I really see no reason why it can't be effectively used by family physicians. So um, I think the, the long answer is yes, it should and can be used, I would think, by family practitioners. When a GP suspects pulmonary embolism, which patients should they apply the well score to and which patients should they send directly to the emergency department? Well, I always teach people that the whole idea is a patient comes in with symptoms that could be uh, pulmonary embolism, so cardiopulmonary symptoms. Do your history, do your physical, do what you do with your normal examination, and then decide then after you've done that, is pulmonary embolism a possible diagnosis? If yes at that point, then the model is applied. I think most patients who come in with these sorts of complaints, once you've done your assessment, could have the model applied to them. With respect to referring patients to the emergency department, that clearly is those patients who are unstable. So any patient who's very uh, tachycardic, hypotensive, has uh, O2 oxygen requirements, who's had syncope and is unsteady. Uh, you know, I think common sense would tell you those who those patients who are unwell are the ones who should go to the emergency department. I think in some cases those patients, you still need to assess the patients first. You don't just panic and say the heart rate's 120 or the blood pressure's 90. Uh, maybe the blood pressure's normally 95. So you still need to evaluate the patient. But you don't want to mess around waiting for D-dimers and so forth if you feel a patient's unstable. What practical pointers would you give GPs in the UK 
who want to use the Wells rule for pulmonary embolism? First, it's important to follow it closely. There are specific criteria that, that can you can make errors on if you don't understand exactly how they're supposed to be employed. For example, the immobilization criteria. Um, previous VTE, you should be sure there's a previous VTE. Examine the leg for deep vein thrombosis. Don't just take the patients telling you about their symptoms. Um, but most importantly, what I say to everybody is that the Wells model is a guide. So if your clinical instinct or your, your spidey sense is tingling, that you think that your, the model says the patient is low probability, but you're just not comfortable, then it's okay to not use the model. Nothing is perfect. The model is not always right. It doesn't apply to every single patient. It was derived from, you know, not the world, but from a subset of patients. And so if any time you're not comfortable with the model, remember it's only a guide and it's never the wrong thing to do diagnostic testing or to refer to somebody who may have more expertise than you do. Dr. Wells, thank you for giving us this interview. My pleasure. Dr. Gregoire Legal is the author of the Adjust PE study and age-adjusted D-dimer. Could you give us some background to age-adjusted D-dimer? Sure. So as you know, we've been using the D-dimer test for many years to, to rule out pulmonary embolism in patients coming to the emergency room or to physicians with symptoms evocative of the disease. And we, we know from many, many studies that it's perfectly safe to rule out pulmonary embolism in a patient with a non-high pretest probability. So we usually recommend the use of a clinical decision rule such as a well score of the Geneva score. And when the pretest is not high and when you have a negative D-dimer test, we are, we are confident that we can safely rule out the disease and these patients don't require further imaging tests and they don't require anticoagulant therapy. The problem we had is that when we have elderly patients, it's really common to find a positive D-dimer test, which means that in most cases, these patients end requiring imaging. So we thought about ways to try to mitigate that and we realized that it was in fact possible to increase the dimer threshold for positivity as age advances. And the statistical analysis gave us a result that was very close from we could increase the threshold uh, based on the age just by multiplying the patient's age by 10. So that if a patient is 62, his optimal dimer threshold would be 620, if he's 74, 740 and so on. Thank you. Can age-adjusted D-dimer safely exclude pulmonary embolism in UK hospitals? Yes, I think it can. And, and I'm basing that on, on the Adjust P study, which was a large prospective management study of more than 3,000 patients. And in that study, when patients had a D-dimer test that was above 500 but below the age-adjusted threshold, these patients were not treated with anticoagulants. They were followed for three months, and the risk of recurrent VTE or the risk of thrombobilic complication was very low, uh, in line with the one observed in patients with a D-dimer below. 500. This was later retrospectively validated in many, many databases so that we now have more than 20,000 patients uh, in the literature and all the, all the studies showed a, a similar signal with, with significant increase in the patients in whom the PE can be ruled out on a non-invasive basis and still keeping the safety of the test. 
Can GPs safely use age-adjusted D-dimer to exclude pulmonary embolism in their surgeries? They can as well. If they have a quantitative D-dimer assay, a point-of-care assay, or if they have an easy access to a lab that could give them the result within a reasonable delay, and again, in combination with a pretest probability model, it would be perfectly safe to do that. And it would be particularly useful because really, the elderly patients are the ones we don't want to have to send to the hospital. They are the ones that we don't want them to have to receive some some contrast agent. and, And so that's particularly useful, I think. What's your opinion of using age-adjusted D-dimer to diagnose deep vein thrombosis rather than pulmonary embolism? That's an important question. Uh, We are working on that. Uh, We did some retrospective analysis as well. It looks like it works the same way as for uh, suspected PE, but admittedly for now we don't have a prospective management outcome study, so we are performing that study now. But until the results get available, I I would not recommend using them until further data become available. And to finish, could you summarize once more the benefits of using age-adjusted D-dimer for diagnosing pulmonary embolism. The surprising fact or the good fact is that really the older the patients are most likely benefit from that approach. And because, again, when you use a traditional D-dimer threshold, less than 5% of patients above 80 years of age will have a negative D-dimer. When you use the age-adjusted, up to 20, 25, even 30% of your patient might have a negative D-dimer, and that's really useful in, in, in this subgroup of patients. Thank you for talking with us, Dr. Legal. Jeffrey Klein is the author of The Perk Rule. Thank you for taking your interview, Dr. Klein. I'm happy to be here and look forward to talking with you. Can the Perk Rule safely exclude pulmonary embolism in the emergency department? So the answer to that is a little bit dependent upon the probability of pulmonary embolism and the population that it's being applied to. Across multiple different populations, the eight Components of the PERC rule that are objective together have a likelihood ratio negative of about 0.15 to 0.10 or 0.20. So as long as it's applied to a population that has a prevalence of disease around 5% or less, therefore we'll get a posterior probability of about 1% and it's safe there. It might not always work in France or Italy or maybe some places in the UK for the undifferentiated population, but it works well if the clinician has a low pretest prob- gestalt pretest probability. What advice can you give doctors who want to use the PERC rule in their own practice? Again, it has to be used in a population that you, instinct is basically that it This patient doesn't need a test for pulmonary embolism, but has some signs and symptoms or maybe something that worries me a little bit. If they're up into the higher pretest probability range, just order a D-dimer. The PERC rule is designed to assist your clinical acumen. Do you have any practical points about remembering the different components of the rule or else applying the rule? My most important statement is Don't waste your brain power memorizing any decision rule. Look them up. 
The biggest mistakes we see with the PERC rule is that people fail to use the highest heart rate. They don't actually ask the questions about estrogen or hemoptysis. So when we do real-time surveys of the use of the PERC rule, the quote-unquote failures are more about the doctor's failure to ask each question assiduously than it is about the failure of the PERC rule. Can GPs safely use the PERC rule to exclude pulmonary embolism in their surgeries? So the jury is out on that. We will need a validation trial. I don't know anything that would make the PERC rule ineligible in a surgery population, in a general practice population in the office, but it just hasn't been validated. So I think I have to say I bet it does, but let's wait until we have a validation study to give that a um, grade one type of recommendation. I think that we need to wait and see what the randomized trial of Jonathan Freund shows, that uh, he applied the PERC rule in a French population, which will have a much higher pretest probability than America. I think that'll tell us more about its use in European populations. Thanks very much for speaking to us. Always good to talk with you, Kirsten. Take care. Thanks very much to Kirsten for recording these interviews. I should add that the BMJ Learning module is available on our website, www.learning.bmj.com, and the module is called Step-by-Step, How to Diagnose a Pulmonary Embolism. Thank you very much for listening. (music) 